Once in a while, you come across a podcast that really catches your attention. God knows there's a lot to choose from, and sometimes sifting through them can seem a bit overwhelming. That's why I'm here to help you out. If you're a fan of this podcast, then you're obviously into true crime. And if you've been listening, then you know that more than once we've touched on how the military plays a role in many of the stories. From episode one, where Kevin Lee Graff was stationed at Camp Pendleton in San Diego only to brutally murder two unsuspecting men, to Dennis Nilsson over in the UK acting as a military chef in Germany only to come home to drug and dismember his victims, to our Porn Wars episode, where our perps, both former military, plan and execute the murder of their supposed biggest porn rival producer. Military and former military perpetrators are so prevalent that I even posted a poll on my Patreon page asking if you thought that being part of the military could result in a person dehumanizing life and becoming desensitized to killing. Well, enter Military True Crime Addict, a podcast hosted by David Kokish about true crime as it relates to military personnel, veterans, and families of military members. Military True Crime Addict sets the scene with a great musical score. It's really dramatic. And then here comes David, a natural storyteller who takes us through with the right details to really put you in the time-space reality of the crimes, which, as you know, is important for me. He lays out the narrative so that it's easy to follow and really makes sense to the listener. Listen, there's nothing worse than when you're listening to a podcast and then you just lose track of the story and you're like, wait, who is that? Wait, where am I now? And then you have to try to go back and find the place of where you got off track. Not fun. David is tactful when it comes to the more sensitive parts of the crimes, which as we know is not an easy feat to accomplish. And his obvious passion and interest in being able to tell untold military true crime stories really shines through. As I said, the amount of true crime stories that have direct and indirect ties to the military is a little bit overwhelming. And David is cherry picking the ones that he knows we will appreciate hearing. A really cute touch that he does too is the shout outs at the end of the episode. So he really brings in the listeners by allowing them space to say quick shout outs to loved ones. I think I'm going to write one in myself. So do yourself a favor. And after you're done listening to this episode of True Gay Crime, make a search for Military True Crime Addict and start binging your new favorite podcast. Support for True Gay Crime is brought to you by Manscaped. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard it right, the 4.0. This isn't the 1.0. This isn't the 2.0. This is the 4.0. You know what the problem with the world is? I'm going to tell you. Nobody shows you how to do these things. Why? Bring it into the open. Give me the right tools and let me shave my nuts. Look, Manscaped is engineered the ultimate groin and body trimmer by focusing on intelligent functionality and an incredibly comfortable grooming experience. This is the fourth generation trimmer, guys. And it features cutting-edge ceramic blades to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. This upgraded trimmer includes a multi-function on-off switch that can engage a travel lock. You might not think this is important, but it is. Because one time, when I was working at a hotel, we had luggage stored with us and the bag... 
<laughs> was making a buzzing sound. I don't know if it was a vibrator or a trimmer, but it was <laughs> it was just going off. You don't want to waste your batteries. You don't want to waste your charge on a trimming tool that's just going off in your travel bag. No thanks. You put on the travel lock. It also gives you the ability to turn the 4000K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. And I'll tell you, that is a game changer because... TBH, the lighting in my bathroom is not the best. So sometimes when I'm like down there doing stuff, I'm like, am I getting everything? With the Manscaped, it has a light. You can see what you're doing down there. Did I mention it has wireless charging? The new wireless charging system uses electromagnetic induction, which can help battery length last longer. And I'll tell you, my phone battery is always dying and it's a pain in the ass. So if somebody can make something where a battery lasts a long time, I'm on board. Men, if you've been shaving with the same nut trimmer on your face, you've been doing it wrong, no person wants to end up with pubes in their mouth. It's time to get your own ball, hair, and body trimmer with Manscaped to make me time the best time and enhance your confidence with some nice, smooth boys. Get 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code TGC20 at manscaped.com. Trust me, your balls will thank you. You can find all of this information also in the show notes of this episode. True Gay Crime contains coarse language, adult themes, and content that is violent and disturbing. If at any time you feel you need help, please refer to the toll-free crisis lines in the show notes. Welcome to another episode of True Gay Crime. I'm your host, Patrick Morano. And on today's episode, we cover the story of Reynard Sinaga, the UK's most prolific serial rapist, originally from Indonesia, living in Manchester. By day, he was a perpetual student with four degrees and studying for a doctorate. But by night, he was a serial sex offender, assaulting at least 206 men over a decade. I want to say a big thank you and a shout out goes to Urshi, who reached out to me with this suggestion for an episode. And remember, if you have a suggestion for a future episode, why don't you tell me about it? Hit me up at TrueGayCrime. Did I say hit me up? Do people still say that? Anyway, send me an email, TrueGayCrime at gmail.com. So, there's a poll on my Patreon page and it's asking about the last episode of the podcast about Paul Bateson. So if you want to take part in that poll, go to my Patreon page. Um, It's asking, do you think that Paul Bateson is responsible for the bag murders from the previous episode of this podcast? So if you haven't heard the episode, go listen to the episode. And when you form your opinion, go to my Patreon page and take part in the poll that is there. The link to my Patreon page is in the show notes of this episode. Also, a ginormous shout-out to my newest patron, Carrie P. Carrie, of course, joins an elite group of people who get benefits like early access to the episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and bonus episodes you cannot find anywhere else. Carrie P., welcome to the family. Okay, so for this story, it didn't actually happen that t- that long ago. So usually we do a time, place, reality check just to bring us into the, like, the time, space, reality of when this story took place. The main 
event happened between 2015 and 2017. So that is not that long ago, but we're going to go through a few things just to help put us in that place. Okay, the songs that were popular during this time, do you remember? Sorry, do you remember? Okay, unless you have amnesia, <laughs> you're, you're going to remember. Sorry, Justin Bieber. To say sorry. And then, okay, who can forget? Hello. Hello. Is it you I'm looking for? No, wait, that's the wrong one. Why do I sound like Cher? No, it's Adele. Okay, hello, Adele. Huge hit. Also big in this time, The Weeknd, Drake. Calvin Harris had a bunch of hits out, and one of my personal favorites, Work From Home, Fifth Harmony. Remember them? Also, okay, so then I googled, well, what happened during this time? And then, so this Google page comes up, and it's the 10 worst things that happened in 2016. Do you know what the number one thing they put on their list? The 2016 U.S. presidential election. I mean, that topped the, I mean, yes, I, of course I agree. I agree. But this is like, I feel like this webpage is supposed to be sort of just reporting on universally, things that are universally considered bad things that happened during this year. So this is 2016 specifically. But the number one thing they say is the US presidential election. But isn't that a matter of who you ask? Because I mean, I'm sure some people... I mean, I know some people are happy that that happened that way, but that's funny. <laughs> it tops the list. Oh, my God. Okay, so number two, this is horrible, is the shooting in Orlando at Pulse Nightclub. That was in 2016. I'm actually going to cover that story for my patrons. That's going to be one of the bonus episodes for my patrons on my Patreon page. So that's coming up. Um, and then also in 2016, David Bowie passed away. A legend. Okay, so we're there. We're 2015, 16, 17. It's not that long ago. Not too hard to get there. So, okay, I'm going to say we're there. The sources for this episode are Wikipedia, as per, two articles from BBC.com, TheGuardian.com, and ChannelNewsAsia.com. All right, so without further ado, Let's get into the story of the UK's most prolific serial rapist, Reynard Sinaga. He sits by the window ledge of his small flat on Princess Street in Manchester, England. It's after 3 a.m. and the crowds that once filled the clubs next door are starting to let out. Teens and guys in their early 20s stand around smoking cigarettes and blather on about everything and nothing. They're drunk. Most stumble around, another one pukes in the alley next door. Watching all of this unfold from his perch in the sky is Reynard Sinaga. He watches closely, completely sober, like a lion eyeing a pack of gazelle. He's looking for prey, and like the lion on the savannah, he knows to find one that is alone and separated from the pack. It's easy picking from where he sits. There's always one. Finally, he spots one. Right age, right height, and straight his favorite kind of prey. He throws on his shoes and runs down the flight of stairs. Then he plays his game, pretending to be the good Samaritan who happens to be in the right place at the right time to help out this stranger in need. But what did he need? A place to chill until his friends come out of the club? A place to recharge his phone? Whatever you need, I can help you. The slight man with an easy smile is deceiving and easily lures his prey home. 
Once the door closes to the flat, the prey is offered a shot of clear liquid, just something to keep the night going. Then, blackness. The next morning he wakes up. Where am I? Where are my clothes? He sees a strange man in the corner of the room he has never seen before. He gathers his belongings and quickly leaves, embarrassed, confused, and feeling a little bit sick. This happened hundreds of times, and little did the prey know he had been raped, usually repeatedly, by his host. Let's find out how the UK's worst serial rapist comes to be. Raynard Tambos Maruli Tua Sinaga is born on February 19, 1983 in Jambi, Sumatra, Indonesia. And unlike most of the stories we've heard so far here on True Gay Crime, he doesn't come from poverty, abuse, a broken home, and quite the opposite. Sanaga is one of four kids born to a wealthy Indonesian family in the thriving city of Depok, a city in the Jakarta metropolitan area. His father is a banker and prominent businessman who works in palm oil. Sanaga is most definitely in the closet when it comes to his family back home, and every time he went home for a visit, he cuts his hair short anticipating his father's reaction. They have their suspicions, but without any proof or confirmation, they just stuck their heads in the sand. And traveling home was difficult for Sanaga, who was always nervous before the flight. His father was tough and insisted on meeting a girl in London. She's the daughter of an important Indonesian counterpart. Often when he's away visiting his family, he messages his friends saying how unhappy he is and the, the pressure he was getting to be married. He studies architecture at the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Indonesia in Depok, and he gets his degree in 2006. After graduation, he moves, to, he moves to the UK on a student visa and goes to Manchester University in August 2007, where he gets an MSc degree in planning in 2009 and an MA in sociology in 2011. A forever student, Sanaga starts to study for his PhD at Leeds University in August 2012 in human geography, which I googled, because what the fuck is human geography? It's a branch of geography that's associated and deals with humans and their relationships with communities, cultures, economies, and interactions with the environment by studying their relations with and across locations. The more you know. His thesis, entitled Sexuality and Everyday Transnationalism Among South Asian Gay and Bisexual Men in Manchester, was submitted in August 2016. He received a failing grade for that paper, but he was allowed to resubmit it with the necessary corrections. In Manchester, he goes to St. Chrysostom's Church, which is a liberal congregation of the Church of England. And as a student in England, Sanaga is supported financially by his banker dad and rarely needs to work at all, but he does claim to have worked in a hospitality at Manchester football clubs, clothing shops, and in one of the city's gay bars. Although he's not out of the closet to his family back in Indonesia, he certainly is out of the closet in Manchester. Oh girl, he goes through a slew of boyfriends and sets up shop not far from the city's gay village in a rented flat in a building called Montana House on Princess Street in 2011. Princess Street, located at the very heart of Manchester, is a vibrant and bustling part of town. Following the street down from the imposing Victorian Town Hall on Albert Square, you pass bars, shops, and restaurants teeming with life. Well, the pandemic notwithstanding. Eventually, you reach the border of the city's most popular destinations, Chinatown and the Gay Village. Keep going and you reach nightclubs Factory, Fifth, and Joshua Brooks, attracting a young crowd, often students. 
These students attend one of the two city universities and usually take up residence in the area. The man we're talking about here wasn't just a rapist. He's also a friend and a flatmate. And those friends that knew him couldn't believe the guy they, they called, Ray, could be capable of rape. His last and most recent boyfriend, now living in Europe, has a hard time believing the man portrayed in the media is the same guy he dated for six months in 2013. The former boyfriend, will call him George, because that's what the BBC.com called him, even though that's not his name, meets Sanaga through a friend and has drinks in his flat. George says, quote, he was kind, always joyful. They go to coffee shops, they talk about politics and life, quote, from the simplest to the most complicated topics. Of course, George says Sanaga wasn't a straight guy's quote. I know he liked the hetero type, and the first time we met, he thought I was hetero. But he's quick to confirm that their sex life was normal. Quote, I am confused, puzzled. I never would imagine him raping somebody. It is so unlike the Ray I knew. But the Ray he knew wasn't the full picture, obviously. Ray was turning hetero men as a sport. After one victim argues with his girlfriend in January 2016, Sanaga tells the WhatsApp group that he belongs to with a few friends that, quote, Super Ray saves straight boys from their monstrous girlfriend. George remembers the strained relationship Sanaga had with his father. Quote, he told me a few times how he was glad that England gave him the opportunity to live in a country where he didn't need to pretend to be somebody else. And even so, Sanaga showed England two very different versions of himself. When the news of Sanaga went public, it was not a surprise to his former flatmate. However, we're going to call him Andrew because, once again, the BBC.com calls him Andrew. For the first part, Sanaga's friends talk about the giggly party animal obsessed with Victoria Beckham. I mean, who isn't? She's perfect. And who liked to brag and tell stories of his sexual encounters, making them sound like a sleazy L.A. porn story. Andrew, his flatmate, knew better because, well, he had lived with him. So, from September 2013 to early 2015, Andrew rented out the spare room in Sanaga's flat. Andrew is 21 years old and he works at GAY, one of the biggest gay clubs on Canal Street in the very heart of the gay village. Although the price of the room, 400 pounds a month for a tiny room in a flat, was a little much, it was a five-minute walk to his place of work and 10 minutes from Manchester University's main campus. But for Sanaga, the flat's geographic location was priceless. It was on the same street as two nightclubs, Factory and Fifth Avenue. Andrew moves into the small room after his sister, a longtime friend of Sanaga's, moves out. But the good times, well, they don't last long. And Andrew recalls that Sanaga was hard to live with. He hogs the bathroom for hours on end and spends... A, they're always narcissistic. Always! If you meet somebody who's a narcissist, run! Andrew recalls... Oh yeah, so he's hogging the bathroom for hours on end and he spends the time staring at his reflection in the mirror, grooming his highlighted hair and locking it into place with copious amounts of hairspray. I mean, I think it's healthy to try to look your best, but you know, narcissists are another level. I just want to be clear about that. Andrew is barred from Sanaga's room, but would sometimes slip in when he's out so he could lock his look into place with some hairspray. Andrew remembers that quote, the rest of the flat was quite nice, but it was disgusting in there. Andrew says that Sanaga had a double bed, but there was always a weird makeshift bed on the floor across the room made from duvets. For what purpose? He didn't know. 
Eventually, Sanaga's narcissism was wearing Andrew down, even down to Sanaga's PhD thesis, Sexuality and Everyday Transnationalism Among South Asian Gay and Bisexual Men in Manchester, which we mentioned earlier, which Andrew says is basically an autobiography. Quote, he was doing a PhD on himself. Narcissist. Andrew's sister confirms how difficult Sanaga could be to live with. He was convinced that the world would end if he wasn't in it. Quote, I had an argument with him once because he believed that if he died, all life would cease to exist, she says. Quote, I tried to explain that we would all still be here. He just didn't get it. Then, a few months after having moved in, Andrew notices that Sanaga would leave at weird times in the early morning and come back with random guys. Andrew says, quote, I just thought, okay, he's out to meet a guy, a grinder hookup or something. Quote, some of the places on Canal Street stay open until 9 a.m., so it wasn't that he didn't have anywhere to go. It just started to seem unusual when it became so frequent. I had a boyfriend, he continues, who I would bring back to the flat as well, but I wasn't going to say anything about him bringing people home. I consider myself to be a very unprying person. I didn't really question it, and I suppose I didn't really want to know either. But as the weirdness continued, Andrew becomes more and more suspicious, and something strange is going on. Walking home one night from work, he sees Sanaga trolling outside Factory Nightclub. Then another night, he's outside Fifth Avenue. He remembers, quote, he was standing there on his own. That was unusual. That's when I started to think he was taking advantage. Even though I didn't make the connection, maybe I should have. But I thought, fair enough. He goes for drunk guys. Maybe he's got low self-esteem. I could tell he had only just left the flat. He's a very well-dressed person, but he was standing there in sweatpants, flip-flops, and a jumper, as if he had literally just left in his pajamas. Andrew says he first got suspicious that Sanaga had a dark side in 2014, when, thinking he was home alone, there's a knock at the door. The door swings open to reveal a young man, maybe 19 years old, tall, gym body, tanned with short hair, asking if Ray is home. Andrew says he doesn't think he is, but is there anything that he can do for him? The boy continues, looking really uncomfortable, saying, It's just that I was here last night, or maybe the other night. I woke up here. I just want to know if I was raped or not. That's when the pieces fall together for Andrew, who thinks to himself, Oh, fuck. Andrew gives the young man Sanaga's number and closes the door. A minute later, he hears a ringing from Sanaga's room and muffled talking. Sanaga comes out of his room after the call, asking Andrew, Did you give my number to a boy? Andrew would later look back at this moment and feel guilty for not seeing the signs and for not asking more questions, but says, quote, I suppose I didn't want to know. And also, quote, I had nowhere else to go. Which, in Andrew's defense, I think... If you're in that situation, you're not going to assume the word. I mean, you would really have to see something concrete to assume that somebody is really raping somebody. You know, you're not going to maybe assume the worst, especially of somebody you're living with. And you don't want to jeopardize your living conditions. I mean, like, okay, you've got a place to live. You've got a roof over your head. You, so you ignore little things. So poor Andrew. A week later, Andrew's in his room when suddenly he hears banging and loud noise coming from Sanaga's room. He gets off of his bed and... Okay, so I mean, I guess it depends (laughs) how many incidents happen, you know, with what your breaking point and your suspicions are going to be. Because, you know, one or two things or little odd things out of place. But I guess at this point it's starting to get out of control. Because he comes out of his room, he hears banging and loud noise coming from Sanaga's room. 
He gets off of the bed, he goes into the hall, and he sees Sanaga's bedroom door is open. In the room is a man about mid-twenties in his boxers with like just one sock on, holding Ray by the throat against the wall, shouting and threatening him. Andrew says that he spent an hour calming this guy down, getting him dressed slowly and out of the flat and walking him down to the front door, just trying to reassure him. He says he can't remember what he was saying to him because he was very drunk and it wasn't really making a lot of sense. He says, I think he thought Ray had tried to touch him and he didn't really know why he was there. And then another time, okay, so now it's out of control. Andrew is on his PlayStation in the living room when Sanaga comes home with a stranger. The door opens and he sees this giant, terrifying looking man who is clearly on drugs and his eyes were like massively dilated. And he's looking totally scary and thuggish and he's as tall as the door. Sanaga takes the man into his bedroom smiling. But within a minute, there's a fight, and Sinaga and Andrew manage to get the guy into the hallway where he starts smashing up the place. Sinaga calls 999, and the police take the man away. Sinaga refuses to press charges, well, obviously, because it was his fault, but you know the police don't know that. But the man, it turns out, was a violent drug dealer known to carry knives, and the police tell Sinaga that he's lucky to be alive. But in the 15 months living with Sanaga, Andrew says he saw no evidence of drug taking in the flat. He knew from the gay scene what paraphernalia came with taking GHB, which we're going to cover in a second, and never saw any of it. No pipes, no syringes, no little baggies, nothing, nothing, nothing. Quote, he just drank alcohol and not even that much. Another acquaintance, let's call him Pepe, because again, that's what the BBC.com called him. Pepe. Why did they choose Pepe? Was he Latino? Pepe. Anyway, Pepe meets Sinaga in 2009 at the Benantine Gym in Manchester's Gay Village. Pepe was part of a WhatsApp group where Sinaga would brag about his sexual conquests. In some messages, Sinaga was happily explaining that his flatmate was moving out and that he would be living alone. Pepe writes, quote, You can get in lots of straight boys, darling. While Sanaga responds with a picture of a 21-year-old he had raped eight times the previous evening. He met the young man while he was trying to walk home drunk the six miles to Stockport after he lost his bank card. Quote, ha 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 ha, Pepe wrote, there's always a new one. Of course, Pepe didn't know that he was actually raping these guys. He just thought that he was hooking up with them. On New Year's Eve 2015, Sanaga boasts on the WhatsApp group of having gotten another straight boy he met at factory, saying that the boy had his, quote, breakthrough to the gay world. He even sends pictures of the boy sleeping, to which Pepe responds, quote, I always wonder how you managed to get these straight boys. And Sanaga replies, quote, LOL, don't know. Good luck mostly, LOL. Plus it's Manchester, hun. There's always a chance here. Because of the false concern from Sanaga to his guy on New Year's Eve, the victim expresses concern about imposing on his guest and apologizes before leaving. He had been raped twice. Pepe eventually falls out with Sanaga, yeah, who wouldn't, and insists he never knew anything about the men being raped. He simply thought that the boys were gay but couldn't come to terms with it, so they were calling themselves straight. Detectives would later ask Pepe about Sanaga's sexual practices, to which Pepe assured the detectives that he had never slept with Sanaga, but that he was a bottom, at least from what he knew, since in the WhatsApp chat, Sanaga would say things like, Oh my god, I went home with a guy last night and my bum is still burning. Um... If you went home with a guy last night and your bum is burning, maybe you have an STD or something is wrong with your bum because you might want to check that out. You're obviously doing something burning, burning, 
Okay. Like, maybe you have hemorrhoids, some kind of STI. But actually, Sanaga was pretty open about his conquest, boasting about, quote, turning straight men gay and passing it off as consensual encounters to his friends. So, like his attack on New Year's Eve that we just mentioned, he says in the WhatsApp group, I didn't get my New Year's kiss, but I just had my first sex in 2015 already. Adding that the man was, quote, straight in 2014. 2015 is his breakthrough to the gay world. Ha ha ha. And in another post, he boasts about his prowess with straight men. He writes, quote, take a sip of my secret poison. I'll make you fall in love. That's so fucking creepy. That's so creepy. Listen to that. Take a sip of my secret poison. I'll make you fall in love. What a fucking psycho. Oh, my God. Okay, so we're going to get into his modus operandi, his MO now. Um, Because obviously... There's a problem. We have seen now that this guy is lurking outside of clubs and bringing home straight men and having sex with them. But then the straight men in the morning wake up disoriented, having absolutely zero recollection of what happened the night before. So how is this happening? Most of the victims have zero memory about meeting the unassuming and meek Sanaga. After all, they always met him at the end of a drunken night and then... They're dosed with G, which, by the way, is super dangerous because GHB on its own is going to give you the effects of feeling super drunk. But if you're already drunk and you have tons of booze in your system and then you throw GHB on top of that, very, very, I think I mentioned that in a previous podcast episode, um, not good. Never mix alcohol with GHB, folks, please. Because things like this happen. They wake up in his flat with zero memory of what happened other than maybe having... Actually, they're lucky that they survived the night. People have been known to die from mixing that stuff. So I'm shocked that these guys did not die. They'd wake up in his flat with zero memory of what happened other than maybe having their clothes removed, but there was no sign of being abused because the GHB relaxes the user so much that all of their muscles in their body are super, super relaxed. Sanaga would often video the assaults on his cell phone and he rarely used condoms. What a gentleman. Sanaga at this point is just offending with abandon, sometimes night after night. And there's footage from CCTV cameras covering his block of flats. He's seen leaving one night and then coming back 60 seconds later with a guy. The drug is so effective for Sanaga that one night he meets a 19-year-old and filmed himself raping him six times. Like, I know GHB relaxes you. And these guys are completely passed out unconscious. Like there is, it's like they're basically, they're, they are dead to the world. But how small is Sanaga's dick that no one ever suspects that something happened? I mean, if you're, say you're a straight guy and you've never had anything in your butt ever, ever. A finger is going to be uncomfortable and might be a little uneasy. And then you're like, oh, God, what was that? Oh, my butt feels weird. But a penis being forced up there and then being raped six times. And then the guy wakes up 
naked and confused, and Sinaga tells him that he undressed him because he was just being sick all over the place. He gives the guy clean clothes to wear. In this case, it was a pink t-shirt with the word love on it. And then they start drinking again. And after a few drinks, Sinaga is sort of suggests, hey, you want to have sex? And the guy's like, dude, no, I have a girlfriend. Uh, and then that afternoon, the boy actually texts Sinaga, quote, yo, man, haha, literally just got home. I'm so pissed. We'll have to meet up tomorrow night if you're up for it. And Sinaga, obviously Sinaga is completely up for it. And he texts back, quote, looking forward to another good old drunken night. Bring us the shots till we pass out. Ha. But thankfully, Sinaga starts talking too much about sex in the text, and the boy is like, whoa, okay, freak, no, and he backs off. Maybe this is a good point to talk about GHB and its effects. So it's a Class C prohibited drug. It's completely colorless, and it's odorless, and it usually comes in a liquid or powder and dissolved in water. Now, it's colorless and odorless, but I won't say that it's tasteless. There is like a, like a sour kind of taste so if you would have it just by its own, you absolutely would be able to taste it. Now, if you dump it in a drink, a fruit drink or something to mask the taste, then absolutely 100% you would never know it was in there because it's completely colorless and completely odorless. It generates feelings of euphoria in very small doses. And in larger cases, it can cause unconsciousness, as it does here, and death. So he was probably giving them a small dose, but because they were already wasted on alcohol, the effects were so much stronger. It's usually used by clubbers in so-called chemsex and frequently implicated in sexual offenses as the date rape drug. It's thought to account for thousands of hospital admissions every year, but there's no real statistics about this. Between 2007 2017, more than 200 deaths were linked to the drug, and since 2014, it's been named as a murder weapon in five cases. This might also be a good time to remind you that Stephen Port, from a previous episode, was using GHB. And apparently, I mean... Stephen Port looked like he was missing a chromosome or two. So I'm assuming Sinaga, as much as we hate the guy, he was an intellectual person who had PhDs and masters and all those things in school. So maybe he was able to dose the right dose to his victims. Whereas Stephen Port, remember, he was like killing them left, right and center. He was dosing them and they were dying. So, yeah, anyway, it's all about the dosage with GHB and it's super easy to overdo it. So, now we know what GHB is, we're clear, GHB is Sanaga's weapon of choice. He approaches men outside his, of his flat, conveniently located next to the clubs. These guys are in their late teens, early 20s, they're drunk, as we mentioned, they're separated from their friends, most are too drunk to even remember meeting Sanaga in the first place, let alone what a conversation that they have was about. So Sanaga has a few lines that he liked to use to get these guys back to the flat using the pretext of maybe continuing the party with more drinks at my place or, oh, you need to call a taxi. Your phone is dead. You can come over to my place and use my phone. Some victims do remember being offered a drink and then they know that they blacked out. Physically speaking, Sanaga is really, really non-threatening. And most guys felt that they could take him on if they had to. So they never felt like they were in danger. He's a bit flamboyant. He's an academic. He likes to be called Posh Spice. I mean, poor Victoria. Imagine the UK's worst serial rapist is like one of your biggest fans. 
He's a thin man with a slight build, and he's short, and he smiles a lot. His whole shtick is that he's acting as the good Samaritan, taking in strays and helping them out. The vast majority of his victims were heterosexual, since Sinaga took pleasure in preying on men that he knew never give him the time of day, usually. Again, this is Stephen Port all over again. Like, it's all about the incapacitation of their victims so that there would be no rejection. Because these people are narcissistic, and narcissists cannot deal with rejection. Zero percent. Okay. Most of the men lived in Manchester at the time. 26 of them were students. One victim remembers waiting for his girlfriend outside of Fifth Avenue nightclub when a small Asian guy approaches him. Sanaga invites the guy back to his flat to wait for his girlfriend there. He's given a shot of clear liquid, and he blacks out. Another man described being approached by a young Asian gentleman. He said he has a vague recollection of explaining that his phone was dead and that he was trying to get a taxi. He added, quote, I think I can recall a conversation along the lines of, would you like to come inside and charge your phone and have a quick chat? To his latest victim, Sanaga didn't seem like an imposing character. And during their conversations in the apartment, he appeared to be, quote, an honest, motivated person with an interest in academic research. The man was offered a drink and couldn't remember a single thing until the next morning. The next morning, he wakes up confused and disoriented and quickly leaves the flat. Like almost all of Sanaga's victims, he has no idea he's been raped. Another victim remembers his friends putting him in a cab, but the next thing he knows is he's waking up in a strange apartment. He asks Sanaga what happened, and he tells the man that he found him lying in the street unconscious. Oh, that's another one that he uses a lot. He tells the guys that he finds them unconscious on the street so that he's basically saving them. He brought him home to safety. The man thought Sanaga had been, quote, really nice and had looked after him. Can you imagine that you had only nice things to say about somebody who completely rapes you repeatedly for hours? A teenage victim and university student got Sanaga's number after he wakes up. When he calls him later, Sanaga explains that he was being a good Samaritan who found the teenager passed out on the pavement. Again. Another victim remembers waking up on the floor of Sanaga's apartment covered in a blanket. He thanks Sanaga for letting him stay and suspects nothing, except that his phone is missing. Like so many of his victims, Sanaga keeps personal items as souvenirs, including cell phones, IDs, passports... There are victims who woke up really sick, coming to naked and covered in vomit. One victim who woke up naked on Sanaga's floor feels nauseous and panic-stricken, assumes that he was drugged, telling his fiancé about the suspicion later on, but he doesn't mention the fact that he woke up naked. Which, this is, this is all about shame. I mean, these guys are waking up, and, and I know that uh, victims of sexual assault often blame themselves and there's that shame that goes along with that right because imagine you're some guy you're out with your buds you're having a great time and then things get out of hand it's blurry 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 and then you wake up on the floor of some apartment even if you have suspicions that something happened you're going to convince yourself that nothing happened because what are the chances that something like that would happen to you um, also, you don't want to believe that something like that happened to you because you don't want to, I mean, you don't want to admit it to yourself. You certainly don't want to admit it to your fiance or your girlfriend or your parents or the police because maybe what does that make you look like? Would, were you asking for it? Did you put yourself 
in that position? Are you responsible for what happened? I mean, there's so much that goes along with this. And so I'm sure that a lot of the guys felt like something did happen, but they didn't want to believe it and they just pushed it aside and and just wrote it off as a drunken, stupid night and just moved on with their lives. Another man remembers that he was told he could crash on the floor of Sanaga's flat, but he wakes up twice in the night, once to be sick, and once he couldn't move his arms and he actually could feel himself being penetrated, but then he passed out again. The next morning, he doesn't report the incident to police, again, because of shame, um, which Sanaga is obviously banking on the fact that these guys are going to be so full of shame and doubt and confusion that they're not going to take any action. And, and obviously, these guys don't know that this is happening, happening on a continuous basis. If they knew that there were other victims, I think it would be a lot easier for these guys to come forward. Like, if you knew that this was happening, you would be like, oh, okay, then this did happen because it's not just me. But when you think it's just you that was assaulted, then you don't want to be singled out. You don't want to be the, the victim. You don't want to be a victim, and you don't want to be singled out for something like that. So... Only one report is made to police by a man who wakes up disoriented and sick in a room he doesn't recognize with a man he doesn't recognize. He leaves quickly, and during the day, he starts to have flashbacks of being assaulted. He goes to the police and two days later, but he can't remember where this... I mean, this is how fucked up these guys are in the first place, stumbling out of the clubs drunk. He doesn't even remember where um, this took place. So basically, the police hit a dead end there. Then... After midnight on June 2nd, 2017, Sanaga, now 34 years old, lures 18-year-old amateur rugby union player back home. The teen had left factory nightclub to get some air after he was separated from his friends. Sanaga suggested he try to reach his friends from his flat. While Sanaga was raping the teenager on his bathroom floor, he regains consciousness and fights back. He beats Sanaga viciously with Sanaga turning trying to turn the tables, yelling intruder and help, and he repeatedly bites the teenager. The boy leaves and reports the incident to the police. When the cops arrive, the place is a mess and Sanaga is beaten up. At first, they believe his story, that he's the victim of assault and battery, and that he is taken to the hospital, and guess what? The teenager is arrested. But while he's in the hospital, Sanaga starts to give away the game and arouse suspicion. He keeps asking officers to retrieve a certain cell phone from his flat, which they do, but when they ask to confirm the PIN number before handing it over, of course, it's not his phone and he throws a few guesses out there that are totally wrong and he tries to grab the phone from the officer. The officer at this point, obviously, is so suspicious, he takes the phone in as evidence and when the cops check the phone, they find a video of Sanaga raping the teenager they just arrested. Assistant Chief Constable Hussein, who was overseeing the investigation, calls it, quote, an absolutely unprecedented case. He says the inquiry has been like piecing a jigsaw together without the picture. In his flat, they find tons of phones, and on the phones are over 800 videos of Sanago raping unconscious men. The victims are usually snoring loudly and raped for hours. Though unconscious, it seems some of the men try to push him away, they look distressed, and as Sanaga holds them down in other videos, victims are vomiting while being attacked. Also at his flat, police find Sanaga's trophies, phones, watches, ID cards, images of the victim's social accounts, and searches of them online. There's a trail of photos and names that police use to track down his victims. 
Officers also bandy about the possibility that Sanaga might have killed some of his victims, and they start looking at unsolved deaths and missing people reports in the area, but they come up empty. So, we know that, for the most part, Sanaga's victims knew that they had a fucked up night out, somehow ended up in this unassuming guy's apartment, wake up in various stages of undress, maybe suspect something untoward happened, but dismiss it, and then they move on with their lives. So imagine, a couple of years later, the police knock on your door to tell you that they have proof that you were raped that night. Because that's exactly what happened for most of his victims. Officers would make a positive ID from the videos and the photos, then they would find their victims to deliver the news. Lisa Waters at the St. Mary's Sexual Assault Referral Center says that crisis workers accompanied the detectives on their visits in order to, quote, offer immediate emotional and practical support, which I think is fantastic that they did that. She says that being told what happened, quote, can be quite overwhelming and very confusing. Yeah, to say the least, Mary. Um, quote, what we didn't want to do was drop the bombshell and then just disappear and leave these men with no support. A large program was put in place to provide ongoing support. Water says many of the men chose not to tell anyone else about what happened to them. Quote, that might be because they want to protect their own psychological health. It might be because they're ashamed to tell other people. It might be because they're fearful of other people's responses. All very legit reasons for not saying anything. And dozens of those approached didn't want to go through the court process. I can imagine a lot of people not wanting their face or their name associated with something like this, for sure. Although police are looking specifically at the years 2015 through 2017, photos and other evidence is found in Sanaga's flat that point to attacks happening much earlier, maybe as far back as 2005. Now, on to the trial. Sanaga's mom flies in from Indonesia for the pre-trial... Oh, Sanaga's mom... Oh, wait for it later. You, you got to stick around for Sanaga's mom. We're going to talk about Sanaga's mom in a bit, but stick around for that. <laughs> um, she flies in from Indonesia for the pretrial hearing, but doesn't attend any of the four trials after that. Sanaga was originally held at HM Prison Manchester and reported as refusing to cooperate with investigators. No surprise. When he first stands trial in May 2018, he's charged with drugging and raping 12 men. There was no media attention around the case at this time since the Greater Manchester Police were trying to keep it quiet so as to not taint the jury pool. The four trials take place between June 2018 to December 2019 with a total of 48 named victims out of at least 206 that Sanaga is believed to have raped while they were unconscious. They had identified 120 of the victims and 48 are now willing to testify. The jury's task was to decide whether the men in the videos were awake or unconscious. To come to that conclusion, and because Sinaga pleads not guilty, forcing a trial to happen, the jury has to watch hours and hours of explicit footage of each victim. It's so traumatizing that they're offered counseling once the trial ends. The mountain of evidence is presented with theories why the men and boys didn't know anything happening to them is flying about. Was it the complacency that comes with being a young straight man? One 20-year-old tells the jury, quote, I thought briefly he might have done something, but I thought stuff like that doesn't happen. If the shoe was on the other foot, of course, we all know, and dozens of women woke up in their underwear with no memory of the night before, they would more likely suspect the worst and then go to the police. But again... 
as we mentioned, there is still shame attached to any kind of sexual assault like that. It comes out that actually only two of the men that were attacked were concerned enough to seek medical attention. A 33-year-old called police and St. Mary's Sexual Assault Referral Center in Manchester City Center on April 25th, 2017. Quote, I just wanted to report a like possible sexual assault thing, he told the 999 operator, explaining that he had woken up with a sore anus in what he thought was a hotel room with an Asian man next to him being, quote, overly friendly, just like cuddling me, stroking me. When forensics are done on the boxers, they do find foreign semen, but there's no match in the DNA database. The prosecution puts forth that GHB was used to incapacitate his victims, and even though no trace of the drug is found in his apartment, the symptoms shown by the hundreds of videos were all consistent with GHB intoxication, as were the descriptions of him providing clear liquid shots, and each trial heard expert evidence about its effects. On the defense side, Richard Littler, QC, oh, QC is um, Queen's Counsel, the more you know... Richard Littler, QC, emphasized that police never found any evidence of GHB use. When measuring out a dose, they say, quote, there's a narrow margin between euphoric high and death. He told the jury, Sinaga would have to be a practicing anesthesiologist to administer these drugs without killing someone, which is bullshit. I mean, Port actually was administering it, like we said, and killing people. But like I said, did you see his mugshot? He's clearly missing a few chromosomes a normal person who is measuring it out properly would be fine no one during the trial can believe that this slight man with thick rimmed hipster glasses could be the uk's worst serial rapist ever every reporter that comes into the manchester crown courtroom is surprised when they see sanaga for the first time sat between three hulking security guards he looks like a child himself playing with his shiny shoulder-length hair that he's let grown since his arrest in June 2017. Of course, predators, as we know, come in all shapes and colors, but it's hard to square the thought of worst ever with this scrawny guy. Sinaga is calm, even smiling and taking notes as victim after victim take the stand to testify against him. He seems to enjoy the process as videos of him raping his victims are played for the room. He cocks his head to the side as if contemplating some work of art. It's discovered he recorded on two phones, one set up on the dresser for long shots and one handheld for close-ups. The prosecution tries to convince the judge, Suzanne Goddard QC, Queen's Council. Oh, wait, Queen's Council. I guess that changes when there's a king though, right? So it would be Suzanne Goddard KC when there's a king. It must change, right? What am I saying? Oh yeah, the prosecution tries to convince the judge that Sanaga doesn't need to see the videos, but the judge disagrees, ruling that he should watch them, and the defense is trying to portray him as a harmless deviant instead of a sexual serial rapist. The defense tries to paint Sanaga as hopelessly irresistible to straight men, and in the videos, they are just pretending to be asleep as part of a sexual fantasy where Sanaga penetrates them on camera, sometimes for hours. During the trial, he comes off as vain and self-absorbed, telling the courtroom, quote, I make myself available all the time. I may look like a ladyboy, and it seems very popular amongst curious men who are looking for a gay experience. Sanaga shows zero remorse when it comes to time for him to give evidence, and the now 36-year-old in his fourth trial and final trial just before Christmas looked like he had actually convinced himself 
that he is innocent. His whole defense was this whole Fifty Shades of Grey thing. He says, the sort of sex people have underground. Sitting in the press benches, journalists can't see the videos played by the jury, but they can hear the sounds of snoring, sleep talking, and sometimes sirens. To keep potential future juries unprejudiced, the media is told not to report and to not tell friends of what they hear in court. The victims that do give evidence in court refuse the need for a screen because they want to have a good look at Sanaga. They don't remember meeting him, and when police first approach them to tell them, a lot of them say that they're barking up the wrong tree, and that that is, of course, until they're shown stills from the videos and they see themselves in the stills. Understandably, none of the victims want to watch the films, but they were happy to get back their watches and phones that they thought they'd never see again. Imagine, some of these guys added Sanaga as a Facebook friend after the assault, thinking that the men who raped them actually saved them from the streets. The contrast of physicality of Sinaga against his victims is vast. They're tall, they're stocky, they're strong, and all but four of them are heterosexual. Most are students, there's a chef, a personal trainer, two members of the armed forces with ages ranging from 18 to 36. In the end, the jury sees right through this narcissistic rapist asshole and convicts him of 136 counts of rape, 14 counts of sexual assault, 8 counts of attempted rape, and 1 count of assault by penetration. In the first two trials, he's given 88 concurrent life sentences with a minimum 30 years being considered for parole. They later raised that to 40. And after the conclusion of the fourth and final trial, reporting restrictions are raised and the world finds out for the first time the crimes this monster committed. Detectives set up a hotline for anyone who thinks they may have been a victim of Sanaga's. On January 16th, 2020, it suggested that due to the severity of the crimes, Sinaga should have gotten a whole life order, which in the UK is the worst that you can get because they don't have the death penalty. So a whole life order is the worst sentence that you can get, which of course he didn't get because a whole life order has never been given for crimes other than murder and nobody died in this case. So the, the judge does consider this an option opting rather to say, quote, in my judgment, you are a highly dangerous, cunning, and deceitful individual who will never be safe to be released. But that's a matter for the parole board. In April 2020, he's moved to HM Prison Wakefield. This is like a year ago. This is so recent, guys. So he's in prison. Okay, great. In the aftermath of all this, anyways, the trials are done. Sanaga's dad does an interview with BBC Indonesia a day after his son's sentencing, saying his son, quote, got what he deserved, and that, quote, we accept the verdict. His dad is obviously aware of what, you know, has gone on, and he believes it. His mom, on the other hand, is complete, well, listen to this. She tells the Sunday Times that she, quote, wondered if Sanaga's final victim had made up the story. She says she doesn't even know that her son is gay, quote, we're a good Christian family who do not believe in homosexuality. He is my baby. Oh, girl. Oh, poor lady. I mean, actually, I feel worse for her believing that being Christian is a surefire way to not be gay. We do not believe in it. You don't have to believe. Nobody's asking you to believe in it. You don't have to believe it. It's a thing. <laughs> homosexuality is a thing, lady. You, I mean, there's nothing to believe or not believe. What? That doesn't make any sense. Like, 
Oh my god, talk about putting your head in the sand. I mean, oh my god. And if you're such a good Christian and you don't believe in homosexuality, then wouldn't your God spare you from this torture and torment? Like, it's not something for you to believe in or not. I mean, like, anyways, I guess it's easier to stick your head than to shake up your entire belief system. Like, lady, I wish for you more awareness and perspective. Because your husband has some. I don't know. What happened to you? Like, do you guys not communicate? Obviously, her husband knows that shit went down and that his son is a fucktard. Who, a fucktard, rapist, asshole, narcissistic, psycho. And she's just not going to go there. Because that would be a reflection on her and her Christianity and her... <gasps> she's a narcissist too. Oh my God. I just nailed it. I just understood why she's not believing it. Okay, so moving on from his family, a hotline for male sexual abuse survivors called SafeLine gets a record number of calls after the trial and that several of Sanaga's victims are supported by the charity whose mission is to start a national conversation about men and sexual abuse. Very important. Back in his home country of Indonesia, Oh, this is gross. The mayor of Sanaga's city of Deepak, get this, announces plans to raid businesses in the local queer community. Like he just wants to go in and start raiding LGBTQ2 plus businesses and just like taking revenge on the community. However, human rights activists swoop in before anything can be done, saying that the homophobic mayor was using Sanaga as an excuse to target gays in the community. And for the victims of this monster, the trauma is deep. Quote, some of the men have found it very difficult to function in everyday life. This has resulted in substance misuse, people unable to go to work, students unable to finish university, and others having to leave home after feeling unable to function any longer within their families. That's so sad. Quote, some men have been suicidal, and we've had to try to help them come to terms with that and how we can make them safe. Dr. Sam Warner is an author of a, a report about the psychological impact of Sanaga's victims, says a loss of power coupled with an absence of memory can be, quote, extremely frightening, disturbing, upsetting, because that goes to the heart of how you make sense of yourself, how you understand your experience. I love how, how she said that. It's true, right? This is uh, when you take away your, your power and you don't have any memory, I mean, that's how we make sense of ourselves and our experiences and who we are and what we do in the world. So I thought that was a good quote. In a situation, oh, quote, in a situation where people have been incapacitated through drugs, they may have no flashback to that particular event, she says. Quote, what we will have is a flashback to being told, however sensitively done, because suddenly they become a rape victim at that point. She says the stress and trauma, quote, may continue throughout people's lives. In a series of statements read in court, the men themselves describe the impact. Quote, I felt numb. I was totally shocked, embarrassed, betrayed, and very angry, one man said. Another one said, quote, his actions were disgusting, unforgivable. He has massively abused my trust in humanity. Well, that's the other thing, right? Once your trust is broken with that, like that with somebody, like a complete stranger, how do you trust people moving forward? You know, you're always going to have that sort of in the back of your mind. You're going to be suspicious, I think. Another man said, quote, I want Sanaga to spend the rest of his life in prison, not only for what he has done to me, but for what he has done to other lads and the misery and stress he has caused them. 
A further victim said, quote, I remember the day the police contacted me. It's a day I will never forget because it changed my life forever. <sighs> they keep coming. Another one said, quote, I wish the worst for him. I want him to feel the pain and sufferance I have felt. He has destroyed a part of my life. In a message to Sanaga, one victim said, quote, I'm not going to let you ruin my life which there's a little ray of hope there for that. So that's nice. This horrible story may only be beginning with at least 30 new potential victims having come to police since Sanaga's sentencing. Detectives promise to fully investigate every single allegation and the possibility of future trials is a real one. Sadly, only Sanaga is ever going to really know how many men he abused in that dingy flat off of Princess Street, this narcissistic, loathsome character who stalked the streets of Manchester looking for vulnerable men to incapacitate and abuse repeatedly and for years undetected, is up for parole when he turns 66 years old. But for now, he rots in prison, refusing to cooperate with probation officers, detectives, and psychologists. Police are actively looking for anyone who believes that they may have been abused by Sanaga to come forward. And so ends the story of the UK's and perhaps even the world's worst serial rapist, Reynard Sinaga. I, for me, I feel like, you know, you, you, a lot of these stories you hear about people being in situations or, or putting themselves in situations and not that a victim ever deserves to get what they get. But, but sometimes it's hard to put yourself in a victim's position because maybe it's a choice that you never would have made or you would never be um, in a cult. You would never, you know, seek something like that out or be in a gang or, you know, there's violence that happens around us where sometimes you can detach from it because you can think, well, I'm not in a gang or I'm not, I'm not a drug lord (laughs) or, you know, uh, things like that where you're just like, okay, that seems like there's me over here and then there's that over there. So there's a bit of distance with the, the crime. In this case, I find it so... Could have been anyone. I mean, this can happen to anybody. You go out with your friends. That's it. These are just people that went out with their friends and had some drinks. And then this happens. Um, So I feel like this is very real. And it just feels very... Like this could have just happened to anybody. And for me, that's such a scary prospect. That, you know, this, this unassuming person could be so dangerous... And that really, you could just be, you really just minding your business and then you're approached by this person. I know actually that's what happens with a lot of these serial killers. There are these like Ted Bundy's and stuff. They're unassuming and they come up to you and then, you know, you're minding your business until, you know, they make you their business. So I guess that's true. I guess for me, I'm just picturing it as I've been to a lot of clubs. I've gone out a lot So this very easily could have been me. You just never know. So I think the point of this story, and of course, you know, the world is going to open up again. We're all going to go out. I predict that when things really open up, people are going to go insane. I mean, everybody's going to want to go to bars and clubs and hang out and restaurants. Everybody is just dying right now for this interaction and this human connectivity. And I just feel like when things open up, guys, and I know that I do a true crime podcast, so I'm extra sensitive to these things, but when things do open up and we all start going out and doing our business again, let's all be mindful of who we surround ourselves with and to keep our friends close 
And if you do lose somebody in a crowd, don't just dismiss it. You know, go check on them. Where are they? What are they doing? Are they okay? Um, if you go out with friends, take care of each other. Make sure everyone's okay. Check in with everybody and make sure everyone gets the fuck home safe. Why don't you text each other? when? You, hey, text me when you get in, okay? Or better yet, share an Uber and then just go from location to location, dropping each other off. The point is stay safe, look out for each other because when things open up, we are gonna party! I'm just kidding. I'll probably be in bed by nine. Anyway, that's it for this episode. I'll see you in the next episode of True Gay Crime. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to find the True Gay Crime Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at True Gay Crime. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you have an LGBTQ crime story from your city? You can send your story to truegaycrime at gmail.com and I'll share it on a future episode of the show. Did you know you can subscribe, rate, and review True Gay Crime on Apple Podcasts? It would mean everything to me if you did because it helps me create content you like and it lets Apple know to share it with more people. Thank you for listening. And remember, always look behind you, lock your doors, tell someone where you're going, and look out for each other. Why can't we all just get along?